This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic. Joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large, and we have plenty of things to talk about this week and lots of interesting things that have opened that we may have visited before but are worth circling back on. But let's start with a new release that actually wasn't really on our radar, at least not that much before, despite the high profile director responsible for it. So Martin Scorsese's got this new documentary, The Rolling Stone I'm sorry, I keep calling it the Rolling Stone Review. Rolling I mean, Thunder Rolling Review. Thunder review. Well, it's, it's confusing because Scorsese has bo- both done Bob Dylan documentaries and he's done Rolling Stone documentaries, but this is a Bob Dylan documentary. And there was a Rolling, Thunder, Rolling Thunder movie Thunder. From, Paul, from, from, from Paul Schrader, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So there's a couple of different layers. With a shredded hand in it. <laughs> a few different cinematic layers going on here. But this is the this Rolling is definitely Bob Dylan and definitely Martin Scorsese, and it's called very tellingly a Martin. It's called a Bob Dylan story, and that's that's the significant thing. This is this is hardly a documentary. Basically, it took me a while. I was reading all the stories about what was fictional when I when I, I knew it was there was a fictional element to it when I watched it. So I was looking out for it and found all sorts of things. And then I went and looked at all the stories to see where did this footage come from. That's the big question that that you ask as you watch it, and it really comes from Ronaldo and Clara which is a movie nobody should ever see. (laughs) (laughs) It's a movie that Dylan was sort of filming as he was on this tour and, and was sort of using the kind of the persona, the stage personas of the tour to inform, but you know, it it seems like it took a couple of decades for that, for that project to find the more appropriate outlet in Scorsese's hands. But what's also kind of fascinating about it is that they inject these fictional components, including a, a non-existent filmmaker and uh but i don't think we should give it all away i think what's really well, it's fun, all out there <laughs> yeah no it is out there but i think the best way to watch it is to not read all those things yet see what you think is real and what's fictional and then read all those things which is sort of what i did and i found that really fun i think fi- i picked up most of the right things i wasn't about the filmmaker for example I wanted I wondered if that was the real guy I didn't think it was but I wondered because I wanted to know who the real guy was well it's a fascinating gamble because it is this sprawling portrait of the tour and in some ways it very much is an accurate documentary but the decision to fictionalize certain components is something that invites your own kind of scrutiny about what's going on and that's very much in tune with Dylan's kind of approach. I, There's I think a glint in his eye. There, it, I love the interviews with him because he's throwing as much shade as anybody. <laughs> Dylan, yeah, well, he's in it. And, and, and the thing is, you can kind of tell that it's like, if Dylan's going to get in on the fun, you know, he, need, it, he needs to have a real reason to do it. So clearly there's, there's a vision in play here. And I think that it's kind of like, in some ways, 
on a similar wavelength to I'm Not There, although it's I, I don't think it's quite as, as good a movie, but it's they're, they're both kind of exploring the Dylan persona and the kind of the way it exists in multitudes, fact and fiction, playing with different kinds of... Which has you know, always been his thing. He's, he's, a, he's the Madonna of his time, you know? He always changed it up, and people got mad at him when he went electric, and people got mad at him when he wore makeup in this. You know, one of the funniest things in there is the idea that he picked it up from the band Kiss. <laughs> Yeah, there's some very funny, funny Which things. Which doesn't work. It doesn't... The that one, well, that one stands out as a, a certain... Yeah. yeah, really? Oh, come on. You know, he said, I made note of that. You know, it's 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 very funny. But one of the things that he knows as... as and I met him once. And when I met him, I was very... It was up at Sundance. It was um, some movie that he was in with Jeff Bridges. I don't even remember the name of it. And he... Um, knew that I was a member of the press. I had a badge and everything. And he worked me. He was charming. He was the most charming man I've ever met. And he has the most extraordinary blue eyes. He knew exactly what he was doing as he worked me over. And I made note of it because, because not everybody does that and not everybody knows how to do that. And, um, and he did. And in this case, he knows that he, he looks fabulous. He's incredibly good. This is him turned on and charismatic, as Joan Baez says in in the movie, obviously still totally in love with him, by the way. Um, Everybody's gorgeous because it's decades ago. (laughs) I will say one thing that kind of bugged me about it is there's there's a little too much Allen Ginsberg in this movie. Oh, I loved him. He's funny to watch, and I kept thinking about David Cross's portrait portrayal of him in I'm Not There, which it enhanced my appreciation for that. I just felt like a little he it, it, they they had so much footage of him they couldn't help kind of throwing him in there. In some ways, he kind of hijacks the movie because I would watch a Ginsburg documentary with a lot of this footage, and it takes away from Dylan to some extent. I don't but agree with that at all. Is it, well, but I but he's I think kind of he's kind of like the. He's, he's, he, he provides a certain commentary, but he's also this spiritual figure. Well, he's and, a conduit to the era. And there's this wonderful I mean. scene where the two of them are looking at Jack Kerouac's grave and talking about it. The other thing I loved about um, Dylan is the way he would listen to other people. And there's this great early Patti Smith scene, and you see them talking to each other. And, and there's this great interview with Hurricane, the guy, who, uh, Hurricane Carter who he helped to get out of prison basically by writing that song. Um, and, and, and you, 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 you see that he checks people out and he looks at them and listens to them and he tries to figure out who they are. And instead of going to visit Hurricane Carter and saying, well, are you innocent or not? He just tried to figure out who he was. And I loved that listening quality that Dylan had as though he was trying to learn something from everybody. There's some great stuff in the, record in the record label office where he's sort of pitching this concept of, of going south and, and actually getting politically active where the movie really gets real you know it's not a christopher guest film or something it's not just poking fun at you know the the kind of the posturing of the rock star at a very particular era or something like that it is it's, it's exploring the dylan persona but also providing a legitimate window into how he leveraged it to, to absolutely absolutely he was very committed and there's some great songs in there um and he actually uh is dead serious and they and what scorsese does is to provide some context for where he was at that time um, i will say it's a little too politically it's a little too sprawling in some ways. Like I, I want it. 
I felt like, I mean, you see the list of tours they did at the end of the film, and it, and it's extraordinary how many places they went to, how many shows they did. But it it does feel a little bit like Scorsese can do whatever the hell he wants. And at some points, I kind of wanted him to rein it in a little bit. It's firing in so many different directions. It's like a movie that's trying to be every possible movie it could be all at once. And sometimes I wanted to just settle down and stay on one wavelength. So it's like I think I'm it would still... have been really boring if it had just been another concert documentary. No, I I'm was not saying it should have been constantly, constantly. I just think it's a little unfocused. I was entertained, hugely entertained. I, I have to say, I'm just smiling thinking of it. Was so much fun to just watch this thing, and it's on it's on Netflix, so you can yeah. watch it in bits and pieces. It doesn't I mean, have to be all at once. That's the it's beauty the of it. In some ways, it's the ultimate Netflix documentary because you think about it it's, it's a very long movie and a very strange movie and hard to explain to people what it's all about. How long about. is it? It's over two hours so it's it's it's, it it's a lot. It didn't feel long stuff. to me but I will tell you there's another thing in there my favorite thing in the whole movie which makes it worth seeing for everyone who loves Joni Mitchell is this performance of Coyote and they make it's it's just it's Roger McGuinn and and uh, Dylan with guitars and they're listening to it they're hearing it presumably for the first time she's playing it presumably for the first time in front of other people because they make the point that she was singing new songs um in a sort of daring brave way in all of these concerts on the tour it is so exhilarating to see her perform that and to see the respect that they give her as well they should i mean in some ways uh, you almost want joni mitchell to get this kind of documentary made about her i mean She's I'm still around. I'm sure there's something movie. coming around. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's she deserves the it. Netflix thing is kind of fascinating too because think about like the kind of the global uh, iconography of Dylan. You know, it's not just an American story, even if it it was about a very particular moment in American culture and and the ability to get this movie out there. It's 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 it makes a lot of sense, and and I also think it's worth looking into. You know, how this kind of helps Scorsese in a way sort of gear up for the Irishman. It's like, this is why he likes working with Netflix. They let him do whatever the hell. He can make this totally, you know, category, uh, boundary-pushing documentary thing and, you know, completely uncompromised, and it's suddenly available everywhere, you know. And, and, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on with the Irishman, but it seems like in some ways it makes sense. To look at this film, it makes sense why he would be in business. There was one moment, um, one of the high points I will always remember of going to the Academy lunches, uh, you know, the nominee luncheon, where I ended up with just the coin toss sitting next to Martin Scorsese at this lunch. And I remember talking to him about all the different projects that he had going at that particular time. And he's always juggling a million things because, you know, real features take a long time, especially the Irishman, because he's really I think he's 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 waiting and waiting and waiting for all these uh, visual effects to come in and get finalized and refined. And and this DEA aging thing that he has to worry about with with the uh, with multiple leads in, in the Irishman going back decades. Um, so that's going to be a big, a big thing to, to wait for. And we're curious to see when that's going to come out, but it, it, he's always juggled and he's always done documentaries. I remember the last waltz, which was uh, the, the, the finale of the band uh, and, and their, their tour with Dylan. It may say more about the kind of profile and appreciation that documentaries versus narratives 
receive. But when you have a filmmaker like Scorsese, um, you know, who's so known for his narrative films, it always see, people tend to see the documentaries as side projects. But he's pretty much consistently been a documentary filmmaker since the start of his career. Always, when he doc- there's a long, he made a long documentary list. about his parents. Like it could be about ago. Italian cinema, or it could be um, he's done Rolling Stones, as you said. He's he's got all those, all sorts of them. Um, so then, um, what's interesting though, if you look at it from the award standpoint, I would have to say that it's unlikely that this would be um, an awards contender. Can you even campaign for it as a documentary? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it is what it is. probably know that. Yeah. I I would assume they're not going to, like, try to push this. I mean, documentary... They have enough. The documentary branch is hilarious because they're so sensitive to, you know, what documentary filmmaking is, and I feel like that there will be... There would be some naysayers. Well, obviously, they have a strong... um, you can really define, even though the doc branch has expanded and become more international and more diverse over over the years, you can really define their sensibility pretty clearly. And they're very political. They're very serious. They don't like to reward people who've already been rewarded. Um, Although Scorsese's never won for best documentary, so that there is something kind of. I'm curious. I, I would have to assume that they would they would put they would not reward this as a quote unquote documentary. But I, you know, I could be wrong. Well, yeah, it's, but it's they have of, Netflix has other fish to fry. So um, yeah. last night um, I did a Q and A for The Edge of Democracy, which is one of their films, which showed at uh, Sundance, as many of the doc uh, contenders. Uh, will have shown there and they, they will have been launched there. Um, so this movie by, from Petra Costa, a Brazilian filmmaker who's made a number of documentaries already is a remarkable portrait of how the liberal Democrats in Brazil got thrown out, put in jail, um, impeached. There was a, and, and there, and, and, and the uh, corporations basically took over and put their own people, the far right, in power. How did that happen? How did it happen so fast? And uh, it is a very chilling, very well done look uh, at, 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 at what we should be afraid of. I've been hearing about this documentary since it opened, was one of the opening selections at Sundance. Unfortunately, I still haven't seen it, but Petra Costa, you know, I've seen her, she's made two narrative features over the years, she's a Brazilian director who has been, you know, on my radar. So I'm very curious and I, and I will be watching it. And, it, and I'm sort of fascinated by, you know, how a film like this, you know, fits into Netflix's repertoire because it's, it's a fascinating story that has global resonance. It sounds like it's very relevant. It's exactly the kind of thing they live for. It's going to open uh, pretty soon in 190 markets at once, including Brazil. And, mm-hmm. and she yeah. wants, this is the thing about Netflix. These filmmakers want their, I mean, if, 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 if the, if the journalism in, in Brazil or the media in Brazil is co-opted, um, as some of our media are in this country, um, this is a way to get the other point of view across to a big swath of people at once. So it's a, it's very, very interesting. Then there's Knock Down the House, which um, also played at, at Sundance, which has uh, AOC in it, um, which I yeah. still have to see. I, I That's on Netflix now, so we can all catch up with it. Yeah, I mean, that is the ultimate Netflix movie in the sense that it's, well, we'll see how, how much people are still, in, you know, sort of fascinated by the AOC story. I mean, now that she's sort of settled into just doing Settled the in isn't the word I would 
excuse. Well, I mean, in the sense that I think people She's are She's a disruptor if there ever was yeah, one. I love watching her perform. I don't think that her, 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 this narrative of her rise at this particular moment is as loud as it was when she sort of burst out of nowhere. But the documentary does do a good job of sort of capturing her story and contextualize exactly how she did it. I mean, seeing her knocking on all these doors, I mean, literally thousands of doors while her competitor did nothing, you see very clearly how politics is supposed to work, how that a campaign is supposed to be in action. Yes. Exactly. And that's and that's very impressive to and see. Petra, I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but Petra it's Petra Costa it's, last night actually said we're not in as bad shape as Brazil or she mentioned Britain. <laughs> So, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. over there. Yeah, I, mean, then, I think it's all relative. It's a question of, well, well, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about the nation at large, or you know, the individual facets of government policy that are, you know, or the 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 erosion of of morality? I mean, like there there are bigger questions, and there's like policy questions. I mean, to make a statement like that, it's 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 tricky. But it's also it's nice to hear that there are problems elsewhere. She thinks our democracy is stronger and, and its foundations are stronger, and that it's still functioning. I, you know, I'm worried. It is functioning. I'm worried, but but she thinks it's still functioning. It's functioning. It's just it's functioning it's with very creepy shadows. It is very much threatened. Okay, then there's the great hack, which um, which I uh, you know from the great filmmaker uh, who did uh, the Square. Jahane New James. Say that five times fast. Jahane New James. Thank you. And, and her and her partner. But so I saw I saw a cut of this movie at Sundance that was well over two hours. I believe that it's something like fifteen minutes shorter. It's it's significantly shorter now. But my understanding is it's it's more or less it's got the similar sort of focus. It's about Cambridge Analytica and the role that this firm played in electing Trump by mining eighty seven million Facebook users data in a way that was very creepy and invasive and also very covert and Steve Bannon was involved and I think um, you know there's a lot of stuff going on there that uh, that is very timely but what's kind of intriguing about the film is that it focuses primarily on this whistleblower Brittany Kaiser who worked at Cambridge Analytica and was involved in all this stuff when it first got off the ground and, and how she deals with uh, kind of the fallout and becomes either, you know, a heroine or maybe a villain to various different people, depending on your perspective. And there's a lot to appreciate about how it how it sort of explains a controversy that came came and went, I think, in the headlines very quickly. Um, I just wish the film was a little bit more polished in terms of how it lays out what we should be paying attention to. So you'll probably have to look at that again. We um, shall see. And then uh, you you uh, covered uh, this tribute to Julia Reichert, who's the director of American Factory, which is the other Netflix film, which is ex- another extraordinary movie um, about China and the way that they um, put their uh, employees together in a very uh, organized and productive way compared to <laughs> it's a fish out of water situation where American uh, factory uh, people go over there and, and sort of look with horror <laughs> the way we, the, the Chinese do things. It's a wonderful, so, wonderful portrait of, of yeah, the culture I mean, of, of work. It's also a, a... A real window into the the incompatibility of of, of the our West cultures, and Eastern yeah. yeah. Workforces. So I, I mean, I, had, I didn't cover the tribute. We had a great piece from Faria Zaman that we reprinted from some program notes that are going with this traveling retro. She 
Ju- uh, Ju- she's a great uh, filmmaker. She's been making films for a long years. time. Yep. Yeah, so that's the occasion for this traveling series. But American Factory is very interesting. She co-directed it with Steve Bognar. And um, it what it what it does, I think, quite well is it doesn't it, it avoids taking a side in that kind of traditional cinema verite way. And so you you expect to see something that is very pro-union. And in fact, while it, I don't think that it's anti-union it forces you to see where an anti-union perspective comes from because the challenge that this Chinese billionaire faces is that, you know, he said he came up in a very different moment in so China. He takes over society. an American factory and yeah, an old trying GM to teach them mm-hmm. how to, how to do it the Chinese way. And he's very yeah. frustrated by their inability because there's these, these two cultures are completely incompatible. And, and I think what, what ends up happening is, you kind of understand where he's coming from in terms of the kind of success he wants to have. But at the same time, you know, there's just no way that this factory can value its workers by American standards. And so it all comes down to this union vote. And I won't spoil what happens because people should see it. But it, it really gives you a sense of how challenging it is to even broach the topic of a unionization in this context. And, you know, one of the things I found really remarkable in recent weeks was that the Obama's new production company, Higher Ground, came on board this film uh, as part of their Netflix deal. So so the Obamas are, are EPs on this film. Oh, that's fascinating. And I, and I, yeah, I'm sort of curious, I, you know, is that going to help? You know, I would imagine it's file? an asset. Yeah, that, yeah, that I mean, should be. Gonna, but these are very strong today. contenders, all of them. I mean, then Sony Pictures Classics has uh, a couple of films, three, in, in the running as well, which I caught up with Maiden, which is this extraordinary true story. And there happened to be a lot of video of it. Um, so it's possible for the filmmaker to go back to 1989 and 1990 when this scrappy group of women put together um, their own boat, their, their own yacht for this race around the world. And no, very few people were willing to support them. They finally got the support they needed. And um, that's in the movie and it's fun to see. Um, and they actually did really, really well. Again, I'm not going to give you uh, the, the punchline, but it was very moving, very moving, because they couldn't get arrested on all these boats with men, and they were completely dismissed and and made fun of, and no one thought they could do as well as they did. And we're talking about going around the world on in these very, very dangerous seas, and how they persevered and how they managed to to get to get across the finish line. So um, I highly recommend this movie, and I think it'll do it'll do well in in so the don't forget, uh, Yeah, I mean, so don't forget we've got a few other films that have come out that are also you know. Well, let me finish here. the Sony films. Let me finish because they're, oh, yes, they're not, so. There's Remember not. My Name, the David Crosby movie, which Cameron Crowe is involved with, although he didn't direct it. Um, and that's an interesting question because he's interviewing David Crosby and obviously has had old, long, uh, serious access to him. And, and you can see the movie as a kind of um, uh, an attempt by David Crosby, who, of course, has gone through the mill, you know, through the grinder with drugs and everything else um, to sort of redeem himself a bit. And so it's a fascinating portrait of a guy at the end of his life trying to make peace with who he was and who he is. Um, and then you have Roy Cohn, which played. These are the, these all played. Uh, Maiden was at Toronto and, and uh, the Crosby and the Roy Cohn movie from Matt Turnour, which is excellent. 
um, were were at uh, Sundance. And they're also these are some of the more traditional docs, just in terms of the Roy style. Tone is very straightforward, very yeah, it's very much more. so. But it's it's interesting it's to compare. A, it's to, still a uh, chilling portrait of someone who had a lot of influence on where we are now. It's a it's a movie that people want to talk about and look at for those specific specific reasons. And then you have something like Apollo Eleven. So let's do Neon. Do that, that there's a whole yeah. group of films from Neon who have been just going strong in in uh, the you know with box office with these films. Go ahead. Yeah, no, well, I was going to say, I mean, obviously last year they did well through Identical Strangers, although it wasn't nominated. But Apollo 11 kicked the year off, and I was also at Sundance. It was an opening night film. And um, I think that movie, it's kind of fascinating because it's got the 50th anniversary, the moon landing hook, <laughs> but it's also really good filmmaking. I mean, it's like pure archival, and it's all about the process of getting to the moon, not about, you know, the first man kind of psychology of the character. I'm know. really curious to see how that plays with the doc branch. Because on the one hand, they should be appreciative of all the technological hurdles that they crossed and all the different ways that they turned this into a compelling documentary. I loved this documentary. And it's one of those things that you should see on the big screen. And I think they're bringing it back in July for the 50th anniversary. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. But at the same time, I don't know if they're going to give it those points. I'm not sure. Well, um, it's it's always an interesting thing going back to what we were saying earlier with the dock branch. It's like either they celebrate because of what it does with all this archival, or they dock it because it's all exactly. Archival. That's why I don't. I really don't. I have to sort of talk to them more. Biggest Little Farm is an interesting case too, where it, if 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 the dock branch wasn't responsible for nominating it, you could see it playing really well for the Academy at large. But it's got to get there first. And I'm yeah. not sure they're going to reward this incredibly charming and glossy and well-made and sticky almost, um, you know, uh, nature movie, which does have an incredibly powerful environmental message that everyone responds to. So well, it's, it's almost very... successful to do well with the doc brand. Yeah, I mean, it's, done, yeah, exactly. it's done well commercially. It's it's visually, it's very Im- impressive. It, you could say, well, maybe there's a little too much voiceover. Like there's little things you could pick apart about it. Maybe that's the Doc Branch issue, but it's also, it's like, these are not established names. And maybe there's something, maybe there's a clicky thing that could work against it too. And the other thing that's really sad is that the movie that, that Neon has also done well with is Amazing Grace, which unfortunately the, the people behind Amazing Grace having been stymied and held at bay by the Aretha Franklin estate for so long, when they finally got to open the movie, they jumped into the Oscar race on their own without the proper backing before they had a distributor and if they had waited, if they just waited until this year, they could have had a really good shot with that. Well, they had no idea what they were doing there. That was just a, a clueless move in some ways because they just, why would you do that before you have a distributor? It's a case study and why you don't do that very specifically. But obviously Neon did what they could be to get the money out of it that, um, you know, the potential was there. I mean, it's a very commercial film. So, so was, HBO yeah. has a couple of movies. They've got the Roger Ross Williams Apollo, the- uh, Apollo Theater movie that opened Tribeca. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. I mean, it's it's good in the sense that it's a nice tribute to the history of, of the Apollo. And Roger, who's, uh, you know, board, on the Board of Governors, I think uh, is very popular in that branch. And so maybe there's something there. I, I, I feel like the problem with this movie is that it's, it's just a history of the Apollo. It doesn't go beyond that to make some broader point about, say, you know, 
race relations in America or, or something to that effect. So it, it feels like it's a very small film in that sense and very, very targeted. And, and so I, I would be surprised. If I that do is. want to see it. I, I'm looking forward I to it, but it, I'm sure it's entertaining. Um, but you're right. If it doesn't dig into another deeper layer, it may not get there. It's just you can see how many films there are and how competitive it really is. For example, mm-hmm. the HBO Sports movie that played at Cannes, um, from Asif Kapadia, the Diego Maradona, which I thought was one of the best docs I've seen all year. I mean, it's just that was my favorite about Kapadia's films, honestly. Is my, I mean, I appreciated Amy, but I thought that what he did here in terms of, you know, it's like, again, all archival footage, Edited but in this case... Into a drama. An yeah, it really drama. is absorbing. And I, you know? I love watching soccer, but it's not like I'm rooting for a team or I know it really well or I knew anything about this particular guy who is a huge, huge, huge st- soccer star. He, I have to say, this is one of the best things I've ever seen, but it's not going to, I don't think it'll be, he won already for Amy. That's the, that's the thing. They dock you for that at the Academy. Yeah, that which is BS. But the other thing is I talked to some international folks and soccer folks about this movie and they already knew the story. And so their, their responses were a little more tepid. Like it doesn't tell you anything you didn't already know. It doesn't bring you up to speed on where he's at right now. It kind of, ends on a tragic note and that was that sort of like I saw his story as essentially tragic and he's back to being popular kind of in this stage of his life that you don't really get in the film so there are there are holes he's not unlike David Crosby in this in this regard but this but this is a this is this is a movie I'm marveling at the technological and artistic achievement of how they edited this drama together that's what's amazing about it. I knew nothing about it, so it was huge for me. It was a big eye-opener. Oh, so same. there must be other people like me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that it's... I, I, would I think it it's just shot. opening in the UK right now. Yeah, actually. but it's not opening. It's from what I've heard is it's opening in, in the US in the fall, late September maybe. So probably they'll do a, a fall festival run for it and get a chance to, for more North American exposure. The other shocking yeah. thing is that HBO didn't qualify Leaving Neverland which is the best doc I saw all year, which was the, again, uh, debuted at, I, at Sundance. I wonder, though. It was a series, obviously. I mean, it was several hours long. Yeah, I wonder hard. exactly how you, I mean, that that would be a big, ambitious campaign in some ways because of how, not you know, the length, it's very clearly an episodic experience. At least that's the way it aired. So it is an open question of like, how do you get over that? Well, you saw it all at once at Sundance. I mean, they've done this before where they've qualified it. And, and, but I don't know if it played in theaters. I don't know what, what, what they did or didn't do. But Uh, after OJ winning the Oscar, the backlash was so fierce. If you play it as a movie and if it has a certain structure and you put it in theaters, yeah, you you still have to fight that narrative that it's, that it's TV. Yeah. So then for whatever reason, it's not going to be. So Amazon has one child nation, Nanfu Wang, and it's it's. Um, I still have to see that. That's I've heard it's wonderful. It's yeah, Nanfu Wang is a, about is a, children and not having more than one. Yeah, and so so Nanfu Wang's a filmmaker who's been around for a bit, but isn't really. She had a film called Hooligan Sparrow, and, which was wonderful. Uh, I love I'm that. An, I am another you where she actually lived on the streets with a homeless guy for a little bit. Very interesting director. Cause she puts herself into the story in a very intimate way and it works. But one child nation is the most personal of her, of her three films because it's about China's one child policy and how it affected her life. But it also exposes the sheer terror of having to deal with that policy for decades 
you know, the propaganda associated with it, the kind of forced abortions that happened, all these different terrible things um, that, you know, in China have been suppressed, she finally exposes. So I think that movie's going to make some noise when it comes out. And I'll be curious to know what you think about it when you get a chance to see it. I am, it's definitely on my, on my docket. Um, Magnolia has a few films. They usually do. So they have the Mike Wallace documentary. Um, they have Cold Case Hammerskold. I believe that's theirs. And they have uh, Hail Satan. Hail Satan, I saw. I loved that movie. <laughs> it totally throws you for a loop because you think it's going to be about Satanists or something. And on some level it is, but they aren't who you think they are. And you find yourself sympathizing with them in the, <laughs> and, and, you know, who's really, uh, you know, worse, you know, a Satanist who doesn't believe in God, um, who's trying to do right in, in the moral universe or uh, a Christian who does believe in God and in, ends up doing wrong. You know, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, look at this group and, and very funny, I might add. So based on everything that we're talking about here, it really sounds like the documentary race could be a bloodbath. It's huge. It's just, it feels denser than usual. Maybe that's because the documentary market is doing so well. No, there's plenty of good narrative. stuff. It's good for us. It's good for the box office. You know, a lot of these films are actually doing well. They're doing business. Um, there's Ask Dr. Ruth, which a lot of people like, which I still have to catch up with. That's there's Hulu. Hulu has some movies. Uh, the Amazing Jonathan, uh, which I still have to catch up with. So there's more than enough um, to track here. Uh, Nat Geo has some films, including Sea of Shadows. They obviously um, won last year for free. PBS so, has uh, for Sama, yeah. which I've heard really good things about. I think that, yeah, that's great. That one South by Southwest, really impressive footage from Syria and so on and so forth. So yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. I, I mean, we've been going on a bit, and there's so much more we could Let's get into. Let's go. We're done. We're done. We're, we're <laughs> we'll be continuing to track we have this a lot as more we go. So Amazon. Speaking of Amazon, um, we were tracking late night and wondering about how it would do at the box office, and it ended up doing okay in limited release. They backed off from a wide release. They're going to go wide this weekend, though. So we'll see how they hold up on the second on the second weekend. And this is a more conventional uh, theatrical strategy. Um, uh, they know how to do this. This is what uh, Bob Bernie at Amazon knows how to do. But now they've announced that they're they're taking this movie the report this uh, Steven Soderbergh movie uh produced movie um uh directed by Scott Z Burns with um two really great performances this was at Sundance this is one of the films i thought might have an oscar shot with Annette Bening um playing our California senator Diane Feinstein and Adam Driver in a great riveting lead role um as this uh guy examining CIA practices in Washington and it's a riveting true story about how um the Senate and the Congress were trying to shut down the truth and how these people made it come out anyway and I was very moved by very all the president's men but they're not going to open it um in a conventional theatrical way, which they've been committed to doing, they're going to put it in theaters for two weeks and then they're going to go on Amazon prime. Right. I mean, it's a, it, you're seeing that this company, while not as sprawling as Netflix in terms of its strategy is starting to experiment with 
because it can experiment. And it should. They should be open to that. I mean, honestly, everyone should. But the theaters are going to be responding to this. And I'm curious to see. They when I was at CinemaCon, I mean, we knew that this was probably going to happen. We'd heard about this. Um, And it was part of the deal when they picked it up. And Soderbergh wants to play. He always does uh, to play around and figure things out. Um, but it, what it shows though, the risk is that they're sending a message that there's something, uh, uncommercial about this film, you know, now they're going to stay in theaters. They're not going to go away. They're going to stay in theaters and expand the theaters while it's on Amazon prime. It's not as easy a sell as late night or something so that there is something somewhat uncommercial, at least in the broader context of what people want to buy tickets to go see. But Adam driver is a is a driver. I mean, like people want to think so. Yeah. So there's that. I hope it doesn't hurt its Oscar chances. I hope it enhances them. Um, That's the unknown that they're taking a chance on here. And that's what Soderbergh is willing to do. Yeah. Well, Soderbergh's always been willing to experiment. I mean, that's sort of his MO. So there's a through line there and that that ties into the bigger picture of where the market's going. And and people are insecure about the market. They really are. Exactly. I mean, who knows where, what we'll be talking about a year from now. We could be seeing a lot of different experiments along these lines from the bigger players who have the luxury to experiment. And I think it's, you know. It's a good well, thing. the indies can always go indie with movies like this. In other words, the indie theaters are perfectly happy to play them. They played Roma. They probably are going to play The Irishman, even though there are ongoing discussions about that. I suspect they're going to end up with indie theaters for The Irishman, too. So uh, The Dead Don't Die is finally opening that's a more traditional kind of a release. I don't know how it will do, but it, it, you know, the reviews have not been great for this movie. I think a lot of people, the challenge is that they, had, they, they opened it. It can, that was their, yeah, mistake, I, mean, I think the, and also, I mean, this is, um, it was about context. It's, it's a movie that if you look at it as a genre movie, or if you look at it as anything, but a Jim Jarmusch movie, it really does not hold up to expectations but Jarmusch is a comic poet he always has been and I do think you get a lot of that in this movie it's just it's like very another funny I laughed my head off it was one of those things where you're in Cannes you're in the big theater in Cannes and you're surrounded by uh people from all over the world and I'm that person laughing but it's like um <laughs> it's a savage wit you know I mean and I think uh yes we've seen Better, better zombie, zombie movies com- and better zombie comedies. But if you're like, you know, is it Shaun of the Dead? No, it's no. not Shaun of the Dead. And he's also, he's not a clean filmmaker. There's always awkward pauses and stuff and things that don't always quite work. And his his fourth wall breaking stuff is a stunt that a lot of people would I didn't go for that. I rejected that. I thought that. it was it was interesting in it the sense stupid. that it's like, but on some level, it's like you're getting pure, unfiltered. Jarmish. I mean, this is the, it he, is he just, Jarmish, but it it isn't great Jarmish. It isn't top of the line Jarmish, like only lovers left alive. But it is Adam Driver. Speaking of Adam Driver and Bill Murray, and they are so funny. And Tilda Swinton steals it. The three of them make it worth seeing, in my opinion. Well, there's also like you know all these little flourishes, like Iggy Pop and Sarah Driver's zombies. And They're funny. Jimmy as like a Trump supporting you know, bigot and like all these like flourishes that like, if you're a, if you're geeky about this stuff, you're, you're just getting an unfettered kind of like wonderland of, 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 of 
signifiers of cinema and, and commentary on things. And, and a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's very entertaining about it, even if it doesn't always hold together. And maybe, you know, that there's something to be celebrated about the fact that Jarmusch can just make a movie like this totally on his own terms with focus money. And, you know, that's, that's impressive. I just think audiences should be aware that this is fun, that it's entertaining, that just because the critics are saying this isn't great Jim Jarmusch doesn't mean that it isn't an entertaining movie. That's the Yeah. Issue. I mean, I think I'd have a heart, you know, one of my challenges a lot of times is selling certain movies that take risks to people who have more conservative sensibilities and i don't know if i could totally sell them on this movie but they would probably appreciate some aspects of it what i wouldn't i would say any jim jarmish fan is going to enjoy this yeah i think you're a small group by the way i would well that's what i would say i would say like (laughs) if i'm trying to sell this movie to people i would say you know have you heard of jim jarmish movies here are a couple movies you should probably see and then and then you know kind of you know bone up on jarmish and and then experience this movie the context definitely makes a difference but you know, I'll, I'll always appreciate these kinds of filmmakers and the singularity of their vision. And so it's nice. I, I just want them to keep making stuff. Absolutely. We can. So next week, we'll have a bunch of stuff to talk about because we've got a big anticipated summer movie coming out with Midsommar, which is screening like for a bunch of people in different cities on Tuesday night. So they'll Can't just be wait. an explosion of reactions and tweets and OMGs. It's so scary or silly or whatever. We don't know from the hereditary guy. So that's going to happen. You're going to see Toy Story 4, so I can tell you what I thought about it, and you can tell me what you thought about it, and hopefully we find some things to argue about there. So until then, and I hope you enjoy your weekend. You too, Eric. Bye.